Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head, rent-free. Hey everybody, welcome back to Snakes and Otters. Welcome to episode 51. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So, this is an Our Heroes episode, and today we're going to talk about writer, satirist, journalist... P.J. O'Rourke. But first, very quickly, uh, a little correction. Um, you know, we pride ourselves here at Snakes and Otters on getting things right, and if we don't get them right, we, we do understand humans make mistakes, but we like to go back through and mention. So our last hero, Winston Churchill, we talked at some length about uh, his situation as a member of the British nobility that he wouldn't inherit a title and all that because he was the second son. That's not quite accurate. We had the result correct, but not the reason. He is actually the eldest son of Randolph Churchill, but Randolph himself was not an elder son. So Randolph was the one not in line to inherit title and everything. Uh, if he had been, he could have passed it to Winston, but uh, he was not. The Duke so, of Marlborough being the title. Yes, yes, very famous Duke of Marlborough. So that would have been to Randolph's elder brother, um, and then Winston was a was the oldest son and had a younger brother, uh, John, I believe, and they both had to make their own way in the world and and did so uh, with military careers and and all that kind of good stuff and served honorably in World War One, both of them. And anyway. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to our Winston Churchill episode with that uh, small correction in mind. So let's get on with it. Today is P.J. O'Rourke, and I'll just, we'll just introduce why we're interested in him, and then we'll talk a little bit about his bio. Um, I guess I'm the biggest fan of the three, but I was introduced to this fandom by Robert. That's right, uh, which I had forgotten. So uh, Robert had bought uh, one of PJ's early books. Um, it's called Parliament of Whores, yep. uh, a lone humorous looks at the U.S. government. And uh, I purchased it after uh, Robert did, uh, after he introduced it to me, and just absorbed it probably all in one sitting, I think. Uh, awesome. It was very humorous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that that got me into going back and buying uh, a ton of his old stuff. But he uh, he is uh, a baby boomer. Yes. Kind of a product of the 60s. He got his we start won't then. hold that against him too much. We'll try not to. No. Being Generation Xers ourselves. But he, uh, he grew up in Ohio, uh, did his graduate work at Johns Hopkins, and lived in Baltimore. Kind of got to start writing for like underground hippie newspapers, things like that. And it really uh, originally started out as a uh, kind of a, a left winger type person, and, uh, kind of a hippie, saw himself as a hippie. And um, I think, in fact, he at one time uh, told his grandmother he was a Maoist. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> she, she was really? she was worried he was becoming a Democrat. The joke goes, and he says, uh, "They're both fascists. Uh, I'm a Maoist." And her response was, "Well, at least you're not becoming a Democrat." 
Only peaches. So he would uh, he would go on to uh, kind of in the meat of his career work for National Lampoon. Uh, oh, some work. of the stuff he did, yeah, uh, editor in chief of things, and uh, a lot of the stuff that National Lampoon eventually turned into those early films in the late seventies are things that he had originally contributed to in the magazine. Um, of course, everybody's seen Animal House. Mm-hmm. That's some of, not all of it, but some of that material that ends up in Animal House is stuff that he had written. That was uh, one of their early, the early films 70s. too. Yeah, that was one of their yeah. first. Uh, and it yeah, was, that was kind there of many that came after that, but yeah, sort of a proof of concept that National Lampoon could move from magazine and stage to a film property. Yeah, well, and it, it was—it's his work that really launched the movie careers of some of the most famous uh, SNL alumni, uh, as well. So he know yes. a lot to him, uh, entertainment-wise. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, Belushi jumping from stage to Saturday Night Live to films uh, are based on films. PGO works involved in some of the early material that that stuff's drawn from. Right. Um, from National well, Lampoon, he goes. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, from National Lampoon, he moves into uh, Rolling Stone and becomes the Foreign Affairs Desk Chief at Rolling Stone, which is and a most fancy title. Wait, Rolling Stone has a Foreign Affairs Desk? <laughs> yeah. As to say, does Mick Jagger run that one, or is that Keith Richards' problem? <laughs> but it's a fancy title for. They would send him to shitty places and let him write stories about them. Right. Um, and he did. He went in the, in the 80s. He went pretty much everywhere that was horrible uh, and places that were trying not to be horrible. And he, would, he was there. Um, the Philippines, as they're transitioning from Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos and dictatorship and trying to be a, a democracy. Nicaragua. Um, as they're trying to transition from the Ortega uh, dictatorship um, to a democracy in, during the 80s and 90s, he's there writing these stories. Um, he really had been, you know, name, a, name an awful place, and he's been there. Uh, everywhere you know, from, uh, I from, have to think. I'm uh, sorry. Uh, I just, no, I go ahead, buddy. I just have to think it has a lot to do with his transition from being a Maoist to being a libertarian because of some of the horrible stuff that he saw. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He was able to take the theory of communism, which sounds pretty good on paper for some people, well, and translate it into reality. Yeah, well, when you don't have anything, communism sounds great. Well, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons yeah. it's, so, it's so easily the first rung that desperate people grasp after because they think it saves them. And PJ was in a place to realize that it's not only unsustainable, it is inhumane uh, in many yeah. respects. And that yeah. comes across when you see it applied. And uh, I think that's one of the great wisdoms that he brought uh, by yeah. seeing all these things and realize, well, you know, maybe this stuff you know, might sound good, but it ain't working worth a damn. Yeah. Um, he also uh, was very involved in automotive journalism. He's written for Car and Driver, um, so uh, you know. So he, he's not just political stuff, and not just 
kind of travel writer, but you know some varied stuff about uh, cars. He is in the what's called the Gonzo journalism tradition. Yeah, I was hoping you'd bring that up because that's that's essential to understanding him. Yeah, he's he's kind of the uh, I, I guess uh, a survivor of Gonzo journalism. Uh, I guess at this point, what Gonzo journalism is. Yeah, we better define that. Yeah, it's a it's a school of journalism that uh, exemplified by Hunter S. Thompson, um, where the reporter places himself in the middle of the events. And it's it's more of a more of a reporting in a writing tradition of instead of being this disconnected observer, you're you're talking about being right in the middle of the event. Mm-hmm. So less a war correspondent and a little bit more of a biographical aspect. Yes, it's highly biographical, and. You know, very famously, one of his uh, one of P.J. O'Rourke's early pieces is about being in Lebanon, and he opens the piece talking about uh, how available cocaine is. <laughs> so he's not talking about the Lebanese civil war that he's in the middle of. He starts out by going, you know, cocaine's readily available, and my buddy and I sniffed a pile of it, and then he moves on into talking about uh, the the Lebanese civil war. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a product of the late That's 60s. probably what you lead with anyways. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's always... Uh, that's the, that's a, a parallel that he tries to pull out in his early pieces is some people are concerned about the difference between right and wrong. I'm concerned about the difference between wrong and fun. <laughs> <laughs> so... How very libertarian of him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. well, so Gonzo journalism isn't, is not meant to be all that serious at times. I mean, he's got a biting wit, PJ does. And, man, he's oh, yeah. good at it. When he wants to skewer, he skewers well. And there's always oh, a yeah. smile. There's always a laugh. There's always humor with it. And I think that's one of the great contributions that he brings is you may not agree with what he says, but you'll damn well laugh when you read him. You're going to laugh about it. Um, one of his famous early pieces, again, where he kind of crosses from sort of political and brings in what he knows about cars and things like that and all these different, um, this humor and satire of, of the way the world works very famously is how to drive fast on drugs while getting your wing wang squeezed and not spill your drink. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, 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 just the title alone uh, is incorrect then, in so many ways. And yet it's funny yeah, as all get out. And that's exactly what the article is about. It's talking about what it's like to drive cars fast while possibly on drugs and with a girl and not spill a drink. And it's, it's great stuff, very humorous. Um, I used to take pride you know, in this, being able to eat Taco Bell while not spilling any while driving, but this takes something like that to a whole <laughs> new level. Yeah, yes. this is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally different. So, so let's again. He's been writing now, um, and and being published uh, articles and and full books um, since the 1980s. Uh, again, very famously, around the time of the Gulf War, he published um, the Parliament of Horrors and give war a chance uh-huh. um, 
he went into economics and, and he's done a couple of different books on economic questions. Uh, again, with humor and related to his travel. Again, he's been all over everywhere. He's seen every possible symptom, uh, system of government, basically. And I think for me, it's just, it's fun, it's informed, and it's fun, but it is, it's also, it's informed because he's really there, experiencing it. He's yeah. not just writing from a perspective of, well, here's what I'm observing. He's living it. And I think it makes it so much more insightful about the world we live in because he's not just standing on a corner watching. Right. It's not uh, ivory tower theories about what's going on. It's this stuff really happened. Now, granted, you know, it might not necessarily be about the most serious of thing, uh, things, but um, not every bit of it is like that. Uh, he's certainly an incredibly talented writer. He'd have to be to, to be a freelancer for as long as he has and make a living at it. Because uh, mm -hmm. essentially, I, once you start writing regular books, you're automatically a freelancer. But I mean, before the book started, he was, you know, he, he was not necessarily, uh, he wasn't a nine-to-five writer. Uh, you know, even if he was employed directly by National Lampoon, uh, it had to be a lot like being a freelancer. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be super crazy, and he's the guy holding everything together as the editor-in-chief. Right, right, right. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, for those that have never read him, it's really hard to even come up with a, a contemporary uh, writer who is similar. He's got a lot of people who I think have tried to imitate him. Uh, Ann Coulter comes to mind. She's, I think she has tried to imitate his style, uh, but she's got her own style, and honestly, it doesn't always work. Uh, sometimes it does. Um, and others have tried to imitate. Uh, I think maybe the closest as, as far as um, um, approach, not necessarily content and style, but uh, he, it's a, a writer with less bite, and that's uh, Dave Barry. Uh, to me, they're, they're a little bit similar in the sense that yes. yeah, I they don't that. take everything seriously. And they don't necessarily want you to take it seriously. And, you know, they both may have a point. Um, you know, Dave Barry's probably just not nearly as irreverent. <laughs> yeah, right. I think well, that's a big key word, irreverent. You're, you're very right. There's, there's nothing O'Rourke can't make fun of, hardly. Um, right. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, he's, but he's he, he can be, yeah, he can be very poignant, too, Um because his, you know, part of his observation of being in these places, again, he's been horrible places when they were undergoing, you know, horrible events, and he would he would be very plain about, you know, politics isn't politics if it's getting somebody killed. Right. It, you know, this is this is not theory anymore. You're getting people killed over this crap. And uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't hesitate to be blistering, um, you know, especially in his articles about the Philippines, uh, right. about the t at the time of Marcos. You know, um, he would tell he tell a joke about uh, uh, being uh, kind of in Dante's Inferno about uh, Marcos, 
and I think the gag went something like, Ferdinand's only up to his shoulders in a pit of boiling oil in hell. And somebody says, well, why is he only, only in up to his shoulders? Well, because he's standing on Imelda's shoulders. <laughs> uh, oh. so, so, young listeners, if you don't know, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos were very famously, Ferdinand was the dictator, Imelda was his wife. She was, she was nutty. Yeah, yes. she was nutty as a rat in a coffee can. And uh, she had uh, hundreds and hundreds of shoes and yeah, that's wanted to try to rescue. Yeah, uh, everybody else was scratching out a living, uh, making houses out of tin sheets and uh, banana leaves. And she's got thousands of pairs or hundreds of pairs of these Italian shoes and kind of this Marie Antoinette figure in history of, you know, she's trying to save all this stuff while... At the, they're trying to get out before Ferdinand gets hung. Right. You know, I, I said it earlier, and I, I, the more we talk about the particulars of where he went, um, I, it's, I think it's a natural progression, which is, uh, all libertarians would, uh, would disagree with me, but, you know, I think a lot of libertarians, if you look at them today, uh, they have roots in that 60s hippie culture. Uh, oh, maybe yeah, not today. Absolutely. That, that culture is, uh, those people are, are quite a bit older. Yeah, first um, generations do. Yeah. Second generations are, uh, but, are um, children of. You know, you, when, you, when you come from that 60s background, which is all about uh, freedom, baby, love, and all that kind of stuff, um, <clears throat> libertarianism is almost a natural progression, especially if you are exposed to the horrors of what governments do to their people. Yeah, and you end up with a just leave me the hell alone kind of libertarianism, which to me is the ultimate liberal. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. I want to be free to do do whatever the hell I want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of libertarians today would would cringe at that. But uh, as I said before, you know, don't tell me what to do with my whatever is the essence of being a liberal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, philosophically, not politically. It's a, you know the philosophical thing. So I, I think, yeah. given his background, I think it's. It was inevitable where he ended up uh, without uh, without going crazy. Yeah, yeah he definitely moved to. Oh, sorry, Francis, go ahead, buddy. Well, I was going to say that uh, he is definitely not narcissistic in his writings, though, uh, and and that's something you uh, he he puts him inserts himself in there. And yeah, he'll talk about his getting cocaine and things like that. But really, he is immersed in the area that he is uh, talking about. When he's there, you're there with him. And it's not like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're partying over here while all this stuff's burning. No, he actually is very clear in his takedown of injustice uh, wherever he sees it. Uh, and as, you, as, you, as Robert talked about, he can be very biting at times. I don't want to, I want to make sure we don't paint him as somebody that's kind of unconcerned about, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing my own thing over here and I'm not worried about this other stuff. Oh, by the way, it's going on, but it's not my thing, let's party. Not at all. He's very, very socially conscious. He just recognizes that man's inhumanity to man, as he's witnessed it, brings with it certain consequences, I think, in his mind, that, you know, maybe we aren't very good at to each other in any time. And we just need to leave each other alone. He's not John Stuart Mill, uh, I don't think, although he would see some kindred spirits in him uh, with his utilitarianism where as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I should be able to do what I want. That's a little bit – I don't think he would go there. And I'll lay that out to you guys to see what your thoughts are on that. Well, 
Martin can probably speak better to, uh, than, than, than I have, because he's read more of them, but I would think that's probably, I would guess he would land very much in the, if it's not hurting anybody, why does it matter kind of a, a, a thing, because, you know, that, to me that is the essence of, of libertarianism. Now, yeah. how committed he is to libertarianism, I could not say, because I haven't read as fully as Martin has. Martin? Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, he's a libertarian, but he he is on the the conservative spectrum part uh, that of libertarianism that that lean towards not only should government be small but what it does should be something that protects people's rights. Um, mm. So I mean I don't think you're far off. Um, but I think the main thing for him is just, you know, government has to be up to a certain point, and that point has to be where it protects people's rights, and then after that, it's all pretty much useless. Well, uh, that's uh, probably a, a great point, because the, I, I think his writing about government and politics, um, what I have read, primarily comes down on the side of, Government is so bad at doing most of the stuff it does yes. because it shouldn't be doing it anyways. Um, yes. That's there's a lot of valid criticism to that. Uh, not always, yes. but there is a lot to it. Yeah, I mean, very famously in Parliament of Horrors, the, the thing is uh, he kind of recites through the preamble of the Constitution um, and says very uh, – it's like, well, yeah, but when are we done? Right. <laughs> well, you know, when are we done? Why why do we need to keep going and more things and more things and more things? We're done. Why yeah. why do we have this I think his term is a vast rampant cuttlefish of dominion. <laughs> <laughs> that's so PJ. Yes. Uh, yeah. So well, that's the kind great. of turn of phrase. Yeah, he, he does have a great turn of phrase, and he does have a great way of, of framing his arguments. But, you know, I think that's um, what makes him uh, interesting to read, is that his commentary is designed to examine the why behind a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, of course, that's our, that's our wheelhouse. That's our bread that's and right. butter, the why. Uh, you know, we could sit here and take one of his, his points and, and uh, discuss it uh, for hours. Uh, just because he's so good at framing that question. Well, our very first co very first Code of Honor uh, episode that we did on quotations, his was the first Yes. Uh, that, that, uh, that Martin pulled out and went first with that one. So uh, in many respects, he is a godfather of our thought in many yeah. ways. <laughs> yeah. godfather For sure, man. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, and certainly you don't have to agree with all of his, his uh, propositions uh, to, to, to be entertained. Now, I think in today's environment, uh, he's probably less relevant than he was 20 years ago, uh, partially because nobody can just, uh, nobody can read anything or listen to anybody unless they agree with him. So you're not already predisposed to his opinion on things. You're probably not going to like him, which really is sad. Because yeah, because he's, he's brilliant. He's not there, in my opinion, it's still there, but it's not the primary focus 
is not to convince you of his opinion, but to get you to think about the question. And as, yeah. as we all know, the convincing is the important thing now. You either have to agree with me or die. Yes. Well, you're, yeah, you're, the, right. you're evil if you don't agree. And, and he, the, and he would definitely, yeah, I mean, he would definitely bristle at that kind of an idea because he's seen that in action. Uh, yeah, you know, that's the, if the you worst don't, of what he If you don't agree with me, you're evil. He's seen that in action. Now, he left uh, Rolling Stone in 2001, so he's not traveling, I think, as much anymore. Um, but, you know... Well, he's 72. Uh, yeah, he's 72 now. He is definitely a baby boomer. Um, he is, uh, I believe, a cancer survivor at this point. He's had a, a bout of cancer. And... Um, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. He's kind of the father of, of the some of the wit that goes into this podcast. Uh, he's, he's become, yeah, he's become part of my psyche. So uh, the jokes that I make are often PJ-inspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that we talked about that very first quote from our first Code of Honor episode being... Uh, you know, it's one thing to burn down the shit house; it's another to install plumbing. That's not from a motivational book. You know, I took it as it's a motivational thing, but that's that's from an article he's writing about uh, Nicaragua, I think it is, or Honduras. Um, you know, he's in a place that's in the middle of a you know communist revolution and uh, people trying to escape. I think it was Nicaragua because I think he's talking about the Contras and. The, uh, Daniel Ortega and all that good stuff, and um, he's talking about give them some credit. They did at least just get rid of the former dictator. But like he said, it's one thing to burn down the shit house; it's another to install plumbing. And the Sandinistas did not install plumbing. Uh, they just it's just a swap of of dictators. Um, so there's a lot of you know, there, there's a yeah. huge lesson as we talked about. Um, that's what that's what I even though I don't read them nearly as often as, as you do, I still whenever I see an article I try and read it uh, if, if I have time. Um, it's just he's he's a he's great for provoking thought, and sometimes just yeah. for a good belly laugh. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, we can know he would yeah. not consider himself overly political anyway, especially not now and in his more you know later on. Uh, he was more a commentator on right and wrong and how he saw things. He would use political language to use that. But I think some of the, the one of his most telling small quotations is when he wrote uh, one of his you know uh, uh, Parliament of Horrors. Uh, he says the entire premise, the main argument of that book's, it, book is politics is boring. He doesn't get into partisanship. That's, he doesn't believe that. This is a philosophical approach to, you know, yeah. and, and the entire argument of I'm on this side, so therefore you are evil, the devil, and must be destroyed. He would reject that wholeheartedly, saying then you missed the point, because the political discussion is supposed to be about ideas and ideals, not about partisanship. And there's kind of a universal le- uh, lesson for most people that, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on Facebook, and all of you will agree, that, okay, here comes a partisan screed. You read it from who knows where you would expect to find it sometimes. And uh, yeah. to me, that just, uh, okay, the IQ of the person that posted it just went down the crapper with me uh, because yeah. they're not thinking. So 
one of the things that um, that I love, and we talked about this beforehand, but <clears throat> as we're uh, coming uh, deeper and deeper into the episode, um, I just love this quote about him because I think this is a great example of um, his humor and his ability to skewer uh, both sides of any particular issue. It's oh, yeah. The, uh, God is a Republican quote from Parliament of Horrors. Because um, <clears throat> I love the Internet because you can find anything. And I actually found this from his Facebook account. He says, I have only one firm belief about the American political system, and that is this. God is a Republican, and Santa Claus is a Democrat. God is an elderly or at any rate middle-aged male, a stern fellow, patriarchal rather than paternal, and a great believer in rules and regulations. He holds men accountable for their actions. He has little apparent concern for the material well-being being of the disadvantaged. He is politically connected, socially powerful, and holds the mortgage on literally everything in the world. God is difficult, God is unsentimental, and it is very hard to get into God's heavenly country club. Now, from a faith perspective, Francis and I would disagree with a good deal of that, but that's more about Republicans. Yeah. Santa Claus is another matter. He's cute, he's non-threatening, he's always cheerful, and he loves animals. He may know who's been naughty and who's been nice, but he never does anything about it. He gives everyone everything they want without the thought, without the thought of a quid pro quo. He works hard for charities, and he famously uh, is famously generous to the poor. Santa Claus is preferable to God in every way but one. There is no such thing as a Santa Claus. And that's from Parliament of Horrors. Um, yeah. So to me, he, he has just, uh, just outrageously and hilariously skewered both Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats from 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago, almost 30 yeah. years ago. And yeah, he, he eviscerates both sides because he sees the hypocrisy and problems with the entire partisan process. Right. And ironically, his criticisms from 30 years ago hold up today. Oh, indeed, don't they? <laughs> you know, yeah, I very famously, uh, he, he said, Hillary Clinton's wrong on everything, but at least she's wrong within normal parameters. <laughs> <laughs> it is... So that's you know that's his reason for not going with Trump in 2016 uh, is is at least Hillary's wrong within normal parameters. Um, he's an intellectual descendant of H. L. Mencken. Okay. Yeah. Uh, also from Baltimore, uh, and he he quotes Mencken, and I've quoted Mencken probably from reading it in PJ. Um, you know, politics is an endless series of hobgoblins, each of them imaginary. Uh, and the point is to have the people clamorous to be led to safety. Uh, so that's the, I'm getting that from PJ. Again, skewering that both sides from kind of the, again, a, the sort of libertarian slash conservative uh, perspective. But, uh, you know, definitely uh, somebody who's willing to Put the put the spack on any side of an argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know nowadays there's a lot to be valued in that uh, because he doesn't care. One, he doesn't care. You have to be somebody who does not care to be able to do that. You don't care oh, think oh yes, he hit the, his bucket is completely empty of you know what of f words <laughs> out of them. It's, it's got he, a yeah. hole in it and it's never going to be filled up again. He's yeah. the Ian McShane in politics of that. He's the guy that has no more of those f's left to give, as I read online one time long ago. He he's the guy that spoiled a Game of Thrones episode and didn't care because he's Ian McShane. You know that's just what you do. I don't have any of these to give. 
and, and there's and there's a refreshing uh, authenticity with that, I do believe. Yeah, that, that's a great quote about Hillary. Uh, that I I don't think I if I had had heard that uh, Martin, I, I don't remember it before. But yeah, that that's a great not just a great quote about that particular political race, but that's how his mind works. Yeah, it's like Trump is such an outlier that he couldn't wrap his head around what was going on there originally. Uh, he has since written a book about the 2016 election. It's called How the Hell Did This Happen? Hmm. Well, you know, Hillary asked, he, he wrote her own book. It was basically the same thing. How did we get here? Yeah. Like, how so the did we get to, here? You know, I need to pick that up because I have not read that one. How the hell did this happen, the election of 2016? So let me just give a couple of the books uh, for people who want to maybe check out PJ. Let's start with some of the older ones. Um, let's see here. Holidays in Hell is one of my favorites. Again, that's more of a travel-type book. Um, um, Republican Party Reptile, another good one that I enjoyed. Um, uh, let's see, Parliament of Whores, uh, Give War a Chance. Yeah, that's the one that's I have on his, my shelf. Yeah, that one's that's primarily about the Gulf War. Uh, Eat the Rich. Oh, the first Go ahead, Gulf. Martin, or uh, Robert. The first Gulf War. Yes, the first Gulf War, thank you. Uh, Eat the Rich is uh, kind of an economic study, a very good one. Uh, again, mostly related to some of his travel. Uh, All the Trouble in the World, uh, again, another one from the early 90s uh, to mid-90s. He takes on things like multiculturalism and all that good stuff and, and gets into it. He, he traveled to the Balkans during uh, their disintegration. Uh, and then some of the later books, uh, The that CEO of the Sofa. <laughs> well, during the, during the time, it really got weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Driving Like Crazy is a compendium of a lot of his early automotive work, again, including um, How to Drive Fast on Drugs, while getting your wing wang squeezed and not spill your drink is is included in that one. You know, that's got uh, a very short list of books that have the term wing wang in the title. <laughs> that's true. There's uh, not many of those out there. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a great article. Uh, again, one of his early ones. Don't vote, it just encourages the bastards. Yeah, I like that title, yeah. From 2010, yeah. Yeah. Um, Peace Kills, America's Fun New Imperialism. Uh, that's a, a mid-2000s Yeah, that was uh, around book. the time of the second Gulf War, if I recall correctly, 2004. Yes. Um, and if you want to just get a whole big chunk of this stuff at once, uh, there's a really good one called Throne Under the Omnibus. that <laughs> takes uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of this material and puts it into a nice giant hardcover uh, two-inch thick book. So I really like that one as well. Yeah, right. that's, that's a good primer. If you want to read him in all eras, because he covers a vast breadth of time here. You know, he starts writing, you know, books are in the mid-80s and running up through, well, you know, through 2016, 2017. So if you want to really figure out where he's at at a given point in time, The Omnibus is a great place to start. He has a new one coming out September 2020, according to his publisher's webpage. 
It's called Please Calm Down. Oh, so, wise words yeah, at any yeah. time, but more perhaps yeah. especially for here. Yeah, really. So, so. yeah, you know, I just got to lift my glass to, uh, of, um, of bourbon to be uh, to This is um, regular Woodford that I'm drinking today uh, for this episode. And um, as I had mentioned to um, Francis before this episode began, uh, I had had this right after a little bit of the Devil's Cut, which I had uh, drank the last episode. And uh, it was almost sweet compared to the, the Devil's Cut. It was very interesting. So I've been enjoying <laughs> this one quite a bit. Uh, what do you boys have? I'm still finishing off uh, 1792 myself. I, uh, I, had, I had just enough left for one last glass, and it just seemed a crime to just leave it there in the bottle. So uh, it's being imbibed neat with no ice, just straight out. And, you know, I'm learning to like that. I was not a fan when we first started this. Everything had to be iced. I'm okay with it out now. Perhaps I'm maturing myself, I'd like to think. Well, I'll have to try that. I am still uh, a fairly fresh bottle of Larceny. So I've got another nice glass of Larceny with a little ice in it. And and it's pretty fitting to be hitting the bourbon when you talk about P.J. O'Rourke. Oh, very true. Uh, Yes. (laughs) He would would dig that. that He has bite, and yet he is warm at the same time. Yes. There's something about being on some kind of mind-altering substance that I think he would appreciate. Oh, no doubt. (laughs) It is, uh, you know, everybody has a bucket list, and a lot of people's bucket list, you know, hey, I want to swim with the dolphins, or I want to climb some mountain. Or My bucket list, the very top of it is, have a drink with P.J. O'Rourke. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. You hadn't told us that. <laughs> that, that, that would be uh, cool, yeah. Uh, but you've got to have a long period of time, several drinks, and uh, lots of things to talk about, which I'm sure he would have no problem with that. Well, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Well, so, you know, that's you know, people that you would like to have met. Uh, you know, one of my many regrets uh, is that when we were young and stupid, as opposed to being old and stupid, uh, that Francis and I did not make a cross-country trip to Thousand Oaks, California. And that was, because I, at the time I knew of it, we just never really got around to it. It's one of those things, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be cool if we did it? Yeah. But uh, the great Jack Kirby was known mm-hmm. for his hospitality. And it, there are wow. stories of fans who just showed up at his house. And Wouldn't that have been Oz amazing? would invite them in, uh, maybe give them a sandwich, and he'd uh, show off whatever he was working on, and they'd spend an hour or two uh, chatting with the fans who were brave enough to show up. Isn't that amazing? I had never know? heard that. Yeah, yeah. He was the king amazing, for all yeah. sorts of reasons. Uh, and, yeah, that wouldn't that have been a fun trip? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because in the early 90s, you know, when we were, as you say, young and stupid, that had been pretty cool. It had taken a little while, but, you know, it's worth it. a college trip, wouldn't it? Yeah, wouldn't it, though? It would have been a great trip just for nothing else. Drive all the way out there, see Jack Kirby, okay, now let's go home. <laughs> yeah. And we still yeah. find ourselves in, uh, in awe of that trip even today. Yeah. Yep. That would have been peaking, <laughs> peaking early. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's... You know, the heroes episodes, we talked a little bit about this in show prep. Sometimes the hero episodes are Thomas More, people who shook the world. But sometimes the heroes episodes are, are Jack Kirby and P.J. O'Rourke. Mm-hmm. They shook the world in their own way, but they're special to us. Yeah, they're and, fun. 
fun and influence our thinking and the way we look at the world. And you guys have given me new inspiration that the, the story about Jack Kirby, you know, I just never knew that. I never knew that he uh, was hospitable to fans. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to work on my, my bucket list and find some way of, of doing this. Where does, find uh, some way of, where's PJ live? <laughs> he splits his time between New Hampshire and D.C. Hmm. Well. So he would uh, probably be hard to find. And if he's traveling and working on on stories, then, of course, he'd be even more difficult. Well, he does um, do speaking engagements occasionally. That's how you figure out. You know, you find out where he's going to well, be speaking near you and make a road trip, boys. Yeah, but the, the, the speaking engagements would be harder to arrange a sit-down and a drink. Uh, because he's going to be on a very tight schedule. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. Then again, well, if you buy him a good bourbon, he might just sit down with you. Yeah, bring him a nice bottle, and with goodness knows we could arrange that. Uh, he might say, you know, hey, uh, I'll have a sit with you. you know. Leave the bottle. Yeah. Uh, leave, and we'll leave the bottle. Yes. Yeah. This is a, maybe a bottle of that uh, Blackout Racing Stables bourbon. Oh, well, yeah, that's very easily done. Yeah, the, fo the great folks at Blackout Bourbon have been very, very good to us. And, uh, and in fact, the 1792 I'm drinking is one of their branded ones. Uh, and uh, it, has, it has been well used, as we know. Uh, and there's lots of uh, great, uh, great ways of, you know, bourbon just goes well with everything, especially inte intellectual discussions, I think. So, and what, what better intellectual discussion could you have than with somebody like P.J. O'Rourke, personally? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Assuming you could put together a coherent thought while it, you know, uh, while in his presence. Well, if, yeah, I, I would yeah, think the same would take danger us all to school, with, wouldn't he? Yeah, the same danger with uh, Jack Kirby. You're reduced to doing that uh, Chris Farley bit of uh, remember when you did this? Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised we would be able to speak at all. You know, kind of blubber like, I love you, man. I love you. Oh my God, you just, just kind of love I have for you, man. It's about as far as I could get. Part of that. Yeah, I would definitely be the same guys. way. Well, part of this looking back on those guys uh, with with older, more mature, and and hopefully somewhat wiser eyes. Um, you know, at the end of life, we were far more appreciative of Jack Kirby um, than we were probably when we were first exposed to him. So, and certainly. Some. Some we, we were late to the party compared to his his earliest careers, though. You know, we weren't even born when he started, for goodness sakes, because he's a right. greatest generation guy. He's our grandparents' age, uh, and it, it, I, we were fortunate to catch the tail end of much of his actual career. But also, there was some homage and awe of him at this time. It was like, this is the king, guys. And I'm thinking, even look, though, and you watch watch his yeah, stuff. Even though say, he was yeah. not doing the Fantastic Four when I started reading it. Um, one of the first books that I bought regularly was Marvel's Greatest Comics, which was yes. a reprint book of oh, the yes. Four. Yes, so and they were coming out where we could buy them, yes. light, and they were new to us. Yeah, they were oh. new to us. And uh, that's where I fell in love with his, uh, his rendition of the thing. Uh, you know, I think it, it's just phenomenal. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're really young, flashy tends to... Um, be more interesting. That's why the image guys got so popular in the early 90s. While some of them may have had some very technically good drawings, uh, those that were really good at drawing boobs and, and, and uh, 
uh, butts and uh, taking Playboy layouts and making those into poses in, in the comic books and, and what have you, they sold a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but they King don't stand King the Batman. test of time compared to King Kirby. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, you know, uh, you can't deny that other artists are more polished than, than Kirby as far as their craft goes, but very few can touch his creativity. Uh, that's that. what makes a guy like him important. So what makes a guy like uh, PJ important is that his, he is so good at his craft that few can touch what he's able to do, even if not as many people appreciate it. All right, so that sounds like a mission now coming out of this episode. Um, <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to find out how to get in touch with PJ, and you guys need to help me achieve my dream. Um, we're here for. That's right. I'd like to think we could hold, our, hold a good conversation with the man. I think we are to the point where we could do that. Uh, we bow to the master of him, of course, but uh, I'd yeah. like to think, who doesn't love a good conversation? Yeah. With Renaissance and men such as us? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, again, certainly my humor and I think the, the humor that comes through of the whole podcast is definitely a descendant uh, of PJ's mindset and his humor. Yep. So, yep. So, that's, like I said, that's a, a window into Snakes and Otters, a, a PJ, meeting PJ O'Rourke and having a bourbon with him. Uh, is at the top of Martin's bucket list. Here, here. Not, not swimming with the dolphins. That's no, boring. No. I no, can't talk to a dolphin. I amen to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, because the tune is just not the same since they took all the dolphins out. <laughs> oh my goodness, how politically incorrect you are today, sir. <laughs> oh well, uh, shall we talk about next episode, perhaps? I think we should. Yes. Yeah, yes. we're uh, we're right at forty-five we, we minutes here. Up, I think. Uh, yeah, we uh, wrap up uh, here our, our appreciation of P.J. O'Rourke. And uh, so, Francis, what is next for pop culture? Yeah, pop culture is our next, uh, our next one. Uh, this is one of mine that I've uh, kind of pushed for. Uh, we're going to talk about the samurai movie genre and how underappreciated it is, how influential it is, and how, maybe if you're not familiar with it, you might want to be, because there's some really great stuff to be found there. Uh, we take those, it's very effective at taking those universal story archetypes uh, that all of us love so much, as Robert would say, and putting them into a totally new and fresh perspective that we in the West don't always get, and unless we're into it, we don't always appreciate. So we think we're going to take you down a trip that you've never been down, maybe not, and hopefully you'll find some fun in it. So join us next time. Awesome. All right. Good job, boys. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.